A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout. Jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. Welcome to The Run. I'm your host, Matt Spiegel, a Chicago sports human talk show host, vessel for fan angst in the town of Chicago. The longest drought in the history of American sports is over. And we are coming to you from beautiful downtown Chicago. Yes. Here with Roy Wood Jr. Yes, lifelong Cubs fan. Lifelong Cubs fan. From Alabama, but I'm still a Cubs fan because that's what came on cable. My daddy knew Ernie Banks, and that was enough for me, Danny. No doubt about it, the Cubs are on their way. I mean, that's solid cred right there. I mean, for real, like they did a radio show together back in the day on WVON, and that's kind of how the Cub love crept into the household. Uh-huh. And then also, the fact that the Braves came on at night and we only had one house with cable. Let me tell you something, young people. Yeah, please. There was a time where only one TV in your house had all the channels. <laughs> and you had to negotiate. You had to, I don't know, we shouldn't curse. But I'm, but you had to effing negotiate with your fa- father. Could I please watch the baseball game this evening? No, you can't, boy. I'm watching Hunter with Fred Dreyer. <laughs> or whatever the hell else. But. And your baseball choices were Atlanta on WTBS. Correct. Or Cubs on WGN. Which came on in the afternoon right after I got home from school. And you could watch the last six innings and then watch the Disney afternoon. The sun is shining in Chicago. Hello again, everybody. This is Harry Carey at Wrigley Field. Where the Cubs are ready to open a This is to- why there are Cub fans all over the country, and you have full Cub fan cred even being in Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. Just to prove. I just want to give you an idea where people watch the Cubs. Akron, Ohio. Jackson, Mississippi. Jamestown, New York. Dell City, Oklahoma. Uh, was was Harry Carey and drunkenness part of the allure of Cubness? I didn't know he was drunk until I saw Will Ferrell doing the sketches on him. Uh-huh. Like it didn't dawn him. I just thought, I was like, man, that white dude just be talking with a slur. All right, cool by me. Hey, if you were a hot dog and you were starving, would you eat yourself? What? I know I would. First, I'd smother myself with brown mustard and relish. Well, his genius was you couldn't tell if it was drunk Harry or not drunk Harry. <laughs> he, he started he started playing one against the other at a certain point, and they both worked. Yeah, man, it's it's a pleasure to be here with you, brother, and talk about what I would consider to be one of the most exciting times. Well, the most exciting time as a living Cub fan, followed by one of the most disappointing times. <laughs> hey. The context here, for those of you who haven't been following, is that this season, five years later, the team has basically been dismantled. We're not going to focus on the disappointment. This is what we're offering people, is a chance amidst the disappointment that I just said we're not going to focus on, but is on the front of my mind completely, is that we're actually going to focus on the run. It's called the run because we're thinking about really one month in time, Mm -hmm. October 7 to November 2nd. 2016 and what it felt like for you for me for people in this town for people around the country to be watching 
one final thing get crossed off the list of sports possibilities. Like this was the great white whale of uh, of titles. Year? Is this time? I've been hurt so many times in my <laughs> life. Every year the Cubs are oh oh am I doing oh my goodness. What I'm really excited about yeah. with doing this podcast with you and doing this limited series on this time in history is that we're going to be able to talk to so many people that had a hand in making that run possible. Hmm. And now the lineup for your Chicago Cubs. Throughout the series, we're going to be talking about all the people in the Cubs organization who made this run possible, and we're going to be going deep. This was something that was built over that five years from 2012 to 2016 by adding piece after piece until it all came together in just the right way. And just so listeners know the main characters, it's probably worth running through the big names now so people have them in your heads. I think it all starts with Theo Epstein, who was the whiz kid from Boston who broke the Red Sox curse and should not have been available, but suddenly was, and ownership brought him in to change everything. And then eventually, they go down to Florida and pluck the best manager in baseball, Joe Madden, from the Tampa Rays and say, why don't you come to the big city, Joe, and do it with a team that has some actual money. So you put those two guys together, you're feeling pretty good already. Unless you're... Tampa Rays fan. I don't think you feel good. <laughs> you know, the rise of Ben Zobris and the resurgence of Anthony Rizzo coming back from, you know, his cancer situation. Like, those types of people. And Rizzo was just such a bright young face. And then you've got Chris Bryant, who's already Rookie of the Year the year before, mm-hmm. and then was just on a tear that year in yeah. 2016. So so you got a core of kids, right, Roy, who are all drafted with the idea of them becoming great at the same time. And that's Bryant and Schwarber and Albert Almora and Anthony Rizzo. They had grabbed because they knew him from Boston way back in the day and they loved him. But all these kids were supposed to arrive together. And here they were arriving together, all playing really, really well. One of the players that was a key component was almost not a part of the team that year, and that was Dexter Fowler, who was a free agent and almost didn't resign and didn't join the team until spring training. Just like a last-minute addition was one of the guys and ended up being as important as Jason Hayward was. Yeah, absolutely. You had a Roldis Chapman come in, straight fireballer reliever, and of course there was the debate about whether or not Madden was using him too much over the course of the season. And then you had Kyle Schwarber, who we lost to injury at the beginning of the year and didn't come back and join the team until the World Series. And that was just a myth that that was even possible. And all the way through the run, it started to become a little bit more possible. And then when it actually happened, he was already the stuff of legends from the year before hitting that home run mm-hmm. on top of the right field scoreboard. And the ball is still up there that he hit against the Cardinals. <laughs> so he was, yeah. he, he was already this Paul Bunyan legend. And then here he comes for the world series. <laughs> and we've talked about some of the young kids and you always need that old veteran. And they had David Ross who had won before and these young players looked to him, called him Grandpa Rossi, became this beloved figure. He's now the manager of the team, but he played a big, big role. We'll get to know him. Yeah, and we're going to get to talk to a lot of these people as well. You know, I know we have Theo on tap, Joe Madden's on tap, Rossi, you know, and, you know, there are a lot of great conversations to be had and a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Like, I, I can't wait to find out from Theo how he convinced Joe Madden 
to sign with us and like where they met and that that whole weird situation. Yeah, man. And Joe Madden is one of the best ever at providing an atmosphere for players. That's his thing. And he did a great job with that. And it was massively important. All right, that's your basic group of characters, the ones that would go on to break the 108-year curse of the Cubs. And what a curse it was. It's really not just one. It's curse after curse after curse, lots of stories coming together. We're going to get into that history next. All right, so the culture of Cubdom, Roy, is... Pre-2016 is all about losing. There's so much losing in the history, and some of it is anecdotally rooted in curses. In general, do you believe in curses? I do believe in curses. I believe in ghosts. I do pretty much everything but Santa Claus I'm rocking with. Even the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny, I'll give some 20% validity to. So you didn't have to sell me on the Cubs being cursed. Like, that was not a hard sell. The real curse, by the way, before we even do this, the real curse is bad ownership. That's the real curse. It's like owners that just didn't hire the right people and do the right things. But then there's about 15 major league teams that are cursed. It's true. But all right, so 1908, Cubs are the absolute state of the art. Three straight World Series trips. No one had ever done it. They won two in a row. Then in 1908, something happens. It's called Merkel's Boner. It's true, kids. Fred Merkel. Wait, a boner? Hang on. Stop here. Clarify. Is this a synonym for something else? Or He made a boner, which is a mistake. And it, it this is golden folklore of baseball. Like, I read about this in six different books before I was 10. Johnny Evers of Tinkers to Evers to Chance, the double play combo. Those were Cubs. Mm-hmm. They were so good. But he called out Fred Merkel for not running the bases. It's complicated. Google it, kids. But Fred Merkel had to live with the name Bonehead for the rest of his life. That's cruel, man. Mm. But they did that to Fred. So a lot of people think that's where it began. And then in 1945, we get the curse of the Billy Goat. Because between 1908 and 1945, Cubs were good. They went to the World Series like every five years or so. A whole bunch of times they went. They never won, but they went. Then in 45. Yeah, competitive, like you're talking about. Then in 45, they go to the World Series. And the dude who owned the Billy Goat Tavern, right? And he liked to bring his goat to ball games at Wrigley. Because, of course, who doesn't like to bring their goat to ball games? Yeah, I mean, it's a traveling trash can. Sounds convenient. <laughs> the goat's name was Murphy, by the way, hence the bleachers, the bar behind the bleachers, if anybody knows that one. But legend says the Cubs eventually made him stop bringing the goat. He got pissed off. He put some kind of magical Greek gypsy curse on the Cubs. He wrote a telegram to P.K. Wrigley that said, you are going to lose this World Series and you will never win another World Series again because you insulted my goat. How come, you know, like I got two tickets, one for me and one for the goat? Uh, says, we're not allowed the animals in the ballpark. Bill, you can go in there, but not the goat because the goat smells. And later on, the cops lost. And my uncle sent a telegraph to Mr. Wrigley. He says, who smells now? And bam! Curse of the Billy Goat exists. And they never go to another World Series after 45. It's bananas. That that Billy Goat became this thing that, just backstory on me, you know, yeah. I got on the Cubs train 
somewhere around the Andre Dawson Jerry curl years. You know, that's you know, eighty seven, eighty eight ish, you know, that was around I'm forty two just for yeah. for reference. So that's my early elementary school years is the Dawson Jerry curl. And so the Cubs lose a little bit, a little bit. And you don't really hear, I didn't hear anything about a Billy Goat. This is before Google, and it wasn't in, the, in my Encyclopedia Britannica on the bookshelf. It, like, But somewhere around the early 2000s when the Cubs were consistently there but not getting over the hump, I heard that Billy Goat, that's when I first heard that start kind of floating back up to the top mm-hmm. of the conversation. And I feel like, in a way, the Billy Goat curse gave Cub fans something to comfort themselves, to justify the losing, so that you would be okay with it, as if to say, well, we don't deserve the win because the Billy Goat, but man, wasn't that fun? Man, we almost sure was exciting, right? And it's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's the curse's fault. So let's just move on with our lives. It made the losing seem okay. I think you're right. And, And the truth is that They were decent every once in a while, but every time they were good, they fell apart dramatically and heartbreakingly. Well, a lot of things happened today, and they were all great, and they were all thrilling, and they were all dramatic. Too bad we couldn't have had a victory that meant a pennant, but that will come. Sure as God made green apples, someday... The Chicago Cubs are going to be in the World Series. Like 1969, there's Hall of Famers on that team all over the place. Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Ron Santo and Fergie Jenkins. And they're winning the newly formed National League East. A black cat walks in front of Ron Santo at Shea Stadium. The Mets come back. The Cubs lose 17 of 25 in September. And the Mets win the division and the World Series. Yep. That that left a mark. There's just this degree of pain that comes with loss after loss after loss. And, you know, even with the 45 Cubs, it's like, oh, man, like, they, they, I, they couldn't have known at the time that that was going to be the last time they get there for decades. Like, the assumption is always, oh, we'll be back. Oh, we'll be back. Oh, we'll uh-huh. be back. And then next thing you know, it's 1994, and you're sending out Anthony Young and Frank Castillo with an amazing three-finger change. I respect to you, Frank Castillo, if you're listening. But, like, when do you think the Cubs first started thinking that the Billy Goat curse was real, just as a franchise? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I think 84 was a big, big deal because they were big by then. It was the WGN Superstation. That's the era that you grew up in that you were talking about where you could see them all the time in Alabama or wherever, and they were really good. And they made the playoffs. They had the Padres down in the NLCS. Rick Sutcliffe and the Cubs won game one 13 to nothing of the NLCS. It's like, here we go, World Series bound. But they're up 2-0. And then they're up 2-1, game four in San Diego, and the story goes that Jim Fry, the manager, wanted to save Rick Sutcliffe for game one of the World Series. You don't mess with the gods like that, man. You don't do that. And that is a direct insult. Steve Garvey walks off Lee Smith with a home run. Then Sutcliffe is pretty good in game five, but things get hairy late, and poor Leon Durham. Ground ball hit the dirt right through his legs. Here comes Martinez. We're tied at three. 
Poor Leon Durham has a ground ball that goes through his legs, just like Bill Buckner and the Red Sox a couple years later. And the World Series is gone in 84 when it looked like a sure thing. And that's when people started buying into the Billy Goat hardcore, I think. Yeah, it's it's just been a culture of losing. And, and then 2003 is the closest. It's when they're five outs away. Uh. And there are baseball reasons that it fell apart that anybody who lived through it will tell you about Jack McKeon outmanaging Dusty Baker and Alex Gonzalez dropping a double play ball and all this stuff that went on. But everybody thinks of Steve freaking Bartman and Moises Alou yelling at the fans and the billy goat rearing its head when they were five outs away. For the people who don't remember the Bartman story, if you're not old enough to remember this, Moises Alou is a pop foul ball down the left field line, and Bartman kind of reaches over out into the field, overextends himself to try to catch. He just wants a souvenir. You're at a baseball game. In the air, down the left field line. Alou reaching into the stands and couldn't get it. He's livid with a fan. That's awfully close to fan interference right there. The umpire's all over it. And Moises Alou is unable to make the catch because the ball touches Bartman's arm and the chest or whatever. And Alou just snaps. He's just yelling at this man. And he's sitting there just small. And they cut back to a shot of him. And he's he's there at the game by himself. He's got his headphones on, listening to the radio broadcast. And that ended up being the turning point in the game. And the Marlins went on to score a couple of runs and take the lead and then win the whole series. And everybody blames Bartman. If Alou makes that play, we get out of the inning. And he becomes a focal point for anger and disgust and the fatalism of Cubs fans. And unfortunately, Cub fans made his life hell. Tormented him. He lost his job. He quit his job. He moved away. He still is is living a very anonymous life. Tom Ricketts tried to welcome him back to the Cubs and give him a World Series ring from 2016, and he declined. His life was that damaged by the incident. If Falou never yells at that man, Steve Bartman is a regular citizen of the city of Chicago. Alou, in my opinion, blew the whole... Like, that was... That was the ground zero of that whole situation. But they had to take him out of that stadium through a security exit that night. And, you know, he's just still a Cubs fan to this day, I heard. I know they did a 30 for 30 on the gentleman. But, like, it was definitely a sad day for the Cubs, but even sadder for Steve Bartman. Because, you know, you're never going to come back from that, like, to a regular existence. But the Bartman game for sure cemented the curse. Like, if you didn't believe in the Billy Goat Coast at that point, you had to believe in it then. And then 2007, Cubs win the division, get swept by the Diamondbacks. Some chump named Doug Davis beat them in a game. It's like, really? Doug Davis? It's one thing if it's Maddox, but Doug Davis? And then 2008, they win the division again. They win 97 games. They're awesome. Mm -hmm. And they go to the playoffs and the Dodgers and Manny Ramirez sweep them again. So two divisions won, two playoff appearances, not a single win. And those were absolutely brutal. And you know what? Even all the way to 2015, Roy, they win against the Cardinals. They get to the NLCS. They get beaten up by the Mets, swept by the Mets. 
You remember the name of the goat from 1945? Murphy. Murphy. Daniel Murphy of the Mets was the MVP of the 2015 NLCS. <laughs> and there's freaking goat headlines all over the place. And oh, Murphy came back to bite you. It's 70 years ago, people. My God. To me, part of the issue, Matt, was that the losing happened for so long that it just became this thing that was endearing about the team. Like, well, yeah, they're supposed to lose. They're the cubbies. They're the lovable losers. And also, the the logo, the bear wasn't ferocious. There's no teeth on this bear. He has a gut. He's holding a bat. It's like, it's not... Like, when they went to the... I, I remember early 90s, they went to the cubby bear patch. It's some of the more prominent you know, symbols and logos and a lot of the paraphernalia. And I was like, finally, at least he has evil white eyes and looks like (laughs) maybe he has a desire to win in his heart. (laughs) But this idea of just Wrigley just being the place to drink during the day, like, oh, yeah, it's just, it's a bar. It's just Mm -hmm. a bar where baseball's happening. I think that helped to feed into that ideology some. I think you're absolutely right because it became sort of a badge of honor. Like, I love a team that loses all the time. And people would give you respect. Like, you would tell people in the 80s and 90s, I'm a Cubs fan. Okay. You may as well tell people, yeah, I drink whiskey for breakfast. Oh, wow. Okay. I wouldn't do that to myself, but all right. More power to you. You're strong. You're stronger than me. And in that way, it connects exactly to the Boston Red Sox in the American League. They were the same thing in that way. The Red Sox were the lovable losers, and it was a badge of honor for Red Sox fans. And that's why it's crazy and ironic and weird that Theo Epstein becomes the guy to end that identity for both franchises. All right, I think we need a little first-person perspective on what it was like to play for the Cubs and to feel the weight of this curse we're talking about. Let's talk to Ryan Dempster. He played for the Cubs starting in 2005 and was on some really good teams that couldn't get over the hump. 06, 2007, 2008 in the playoffs, playing for Lou Pinella. He then goes on to win a championship with the Red Sox. 2013. Before retiring in 2014, becoming a special assistant to President Theo Epstein and general manager Jed Hoyer. That was the title. So he was very close to the 2016 Cubs as a member of the front office, but also very friendly with the players as well. All right, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Cubs and, you know, your relationship with them. And and in a weird way, I don't want to say you were spoiled early in your career, but you got a little taste of that winning down there in Florida with them Marlins. You got a, you got a little taste of the of that championship lifestyle. When you came to Chicago, did you know that you were walking into a hell pit of which there had been ninety years of futility up until that point? Respectfully, I did. True story, I did, and the reason I did is because in nineteen ninety six I got traded to the Kane County Cougars. And the Kane County Cougars, I had a host family, Warren and Sam Drews, and the Drews were season ticket holders. Every time you'd see WGN, you'd see behind the on-deck circle, 
the guy sitting in the stands with the glasses, big, huge dude, that's Warren Drews. He was always on TV. So he filled me in <laughs> on uh, what was ahead once I got to the Cubs. He goes, you remember all those stories I told you? They're still true. It's, it's tough to win here. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, man. I, and I, also, I was a little spoiled because now all of a sudden I showed up and the Cubs were winning. Like, they, you know, like, 03, 04. Like, we had good teams. So it was like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I'm going to be the difference maker. That's what I thought. Um, I made my first major league start in 1998 at Wrigley Field. I ran to center field to go stretch. And the right field bleachers rained down on me. Like, just crushed me. And I remember after the game telling my dad, like, you, I got to play here. I got to play for the Chicago Cubs sometime. So, you know, I, I knew that it was it was something that, you know, I wanted to be a part of. And the longer it was going on, I'm watching this. Like, I don't believe in curses. But when, when like, stuff like the Bartman stuff started happening, I'm like, curses are real, man. I'm going to have to, like, sacrifice a live chicken or something. I don't know. Here's, here's what I'd like to ask, and I'm trying to think of the right way to frame the question, but basically, what what was it like when those expectations weren't met? And I know that, you know, 04, if I'm not mistaken, Matt, I know Pryor got bit by the injury bug. I think mm-hmm. Wood did as well. What was it like to come off of that wave of expectation in 03, and then as a team, 04, 05, 06, did, did, did it feel like you all were snake bit or like how hard is it to keep that level of optimism season to season when you see your when you see the window kind of closing at that point yeah it's like being stuck in quicksand it's like you know like you're you're like you're running along everything's going good and all of a sudden whew, one foot goes in and you're like okay it's fine just let me let me just put another foot down and step out oh boy two feet are in here and then you just start sinking because that's how it was I I tell you Chicago in 03 after 03 season come here in 04 I was on the disabled list rehabbing it was like I was the fifth member of the Beatles dude like you were a rock star it was happening 03 happened 04 <laughs> it's gonna happen again and we're cruising along everything's going good and all of a sudden here we go and it just starts slipping and we and we lose that last week of the season we don't hit in New York it's terrible then you know we we lose three or four of the Reds and yeah and then 05 it's like okay we got a good team again Things were going all right. We started out pretty decent, but we're, you can see that we're like, we're short, you know, we're short a couple players. Um, and then all of a sudden, 06, like we were just terrible. And then it, it was hard. Dead last. Yeah, it was, it was it was awful. And like, you know, it was just like, I was the closer that was never closing games because we were never winning any games. Hey, 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 Roy, can we take him back to 03 for a second? Because I think Ryan Dempster... I think he said curses are real, and we just got to check in about that. Well, I just thought, like, when I saw that and knowing everything, I, I just thought I had a feeling in my soul of, like, what what's going on here? Like, can they really have that much bad luck? You know, is it like, you know, not being from Chicago, but yet growing up watching baseball and, and knowing about the Cubs my whole life, and then... You know, kind of being a Cub fan for my dad was grew up in Winnipeg. So the Cubs were like the close, you know, he wasn't going to root for the you know Minnesota Twins. It was like the Cubs were on WGN. So he got that. He it, w- it was just like, this is weird, you know. So then like what Roy was saying, then I'll, now you come as a player. I want to be the guy that that changes that, you know, like my dumb ass at the beginning of 08 saying we're going to win the World Series. 
Like, I just came out when the media asked me. Because, like, that's like a loaded question, right? Like, how do you feel about your season? Well, I think we're going to finish, like, 81 and 81. That'd be good. No. <laughs> you know, I was also very real, too. Like, we just won the division the year before, and we got better. So I was like, we're going to kick some ass because we were pissed from losing, you know, in the 07 series to the Diamondbacks. We didn't play very good. But I kind of really believe that. And, and I remember Lou called me in the office like, son, what are, you, what are you saying that to the media for? Why would, you, why would you go out there and just throw that out there and put a target on your back? I'm like, because I want the target. Come get it, Lou. What do you want me to do? Tell them we're going to suck and finish in third? No, we're going to finish in first place. And we're going to win the whole damn thing and have a parade. Let's go. I need you on board. Stop going to the OTB with Sinatra and be on board with this. Let's go. <laughs> Oh, Matt Sinatra getting a glancing blow of a bus toss. I love it. Um, did Lou ever comment on the curse to you guys? Like, did Lou have feelings on, on that? Did he believe in it at all? Or did he just think you guys blew it? You know what? One time he kind of snapped. He didn't do it very much, actually. You know, he, he came later on in life, right? So he was a little bit more subdued. But one time, like, we just weren't playing up to our abilities in 08. And we just kind of hit, like, one of, it was one of our few kind of, like, rough spells, you know? And he came in the clubhouse and he just kind of, like, you know, just was, like, snapping, but not really snapping, more like talking to us, you know? And he's like, Jesus Christ, the billy goat, the black cat, fuck the curses. He's like, there's only two things guaranteed in life, guys, death and taxes. That's all that's guaranteed. Just go play baseball. And then he went up into his office and 10 minutes later came down in his tidy whities and crushed the shrimp cocktail off the spread. You know, how do you not listen to that? Absolutely. You're right, Lou. I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Ryan, let's talk about one of those most heartbreaking moments, 2008, against the Dodgers in the playoffs. You'd won 97 games during the regular season, so there's serious hope in the air. You guys were really good. And you end up getting swept by the Dodgers in the NLDS. In that first game, though, when things are just starting to go sour, that's when we're wondering, does the feeling of doom... Here we go again, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just saying, Roy, the fans felt like it. We all want to know if the players felt like it. Yeah, you know what we felt was we felt the fans Once feel it. Pitch in the air to center field. Edmonds going back, way back as Edmonds looking up. It's gone. A grand slam homer for James Loney. Like, when I came in, I gave up that grand slam to Loney, which, you know, whatever, it sucked. And the Dodgers have taken a 4-2 to two lead. There's more things. The grand slam bothers me way less than all the walks, but regardless of that, when he hit that and I came off the field, it was four to two. You could hear a pin drop here at Wrigley Field. Well, you, just, you just said it. And it felt like it was 10 to nothing for the Dodgers, like inside the stadium. And I think our I think our team really felt that. And it wasn't, it's not the fans' fault. It's not the player. Like it was just, it was the reality of the emotion of what was going on. Like everybody just kind of like you could see it, like, here we go again. It's like two runs, dude. Like we're blooping a blast. Like you know, like we're a, we're a couple error, an error away from you know scoring whatever it was. It was just it was this, the the air came out of the balloon for sure. It was just like. See, this this feels like a really big moment for us to think about here because it's the last great chance that the franchise had until 2016 when it was broken, and you just talked about something that I think everybody felt. 
And, and it's that that energy of sadness and impending doom that the fans have in the building that can pass to the players and then possibly back to the fans and can go up to the press box yes. and all around the building. That feeling feels it 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 is it happens in sports. But it feels sort of unique to baseball, and it feels very unique to Cubdom, especially at that time. A hundred percent, you know, and I think because as players, we we realize and we see, you know, we travel well, right? It's like, I don't mean like us, like we're flying first class and staying first class. I mean, our fans, like I played in Florida, I played in Cincinnati, I played with the Texas Rangers, I played with the Boston Red Sox. Nothing is like, I mean, nothing is like the Cubs, not even... Not even the Yankees travel like the Cubs do. It's like you go to Seattle, play the Mariners in the Pacific Northwest. Half the ballpark is Cub fans. They all got, they've come yeah. from wherever they're coming from. I've been to Safeco. Yeah. See, he knows, right? It's like, all, where, where, where did you all come from? Did you fly from Chicago? No, we're on the West Coast, but we're Cub fans, whatever it is. And so you feel that, you, you know that there's more than just Wrigley Field in Chicago. You know that as a player. And if you sit there and say, I never really thought about that. Eh, you kind of have, though, right? At some point, like when you're in the hotel and there's like 85 Cub fans in the Pittsburgh hotel, like you kind of, you, you sense it a little bit. When Theo Epstein comes here after the 2011 season falls apart and it, he's here and it's the spring of 2012. And it, it, did you know, was there a time when you realized, you know what, he's going to do things differently. And this entire organization might flip and actually get it done finally. Like, did you have a feeling that he was going to do it right? Yeah. I mean, like, I knew him from Boston through Kevin Millar, who's a good friend of mine. Millar tried to actually get me over there um, in 04 um, to be a part of the team when I was, instead I came to the Cubs. But I knew, I knew Theo's prowess. I knew what he did. I knew how he went about, you know, kind of everything, like trying to, whether it's analytically or, you know, that Theo's this front runner, him and Billy Bean of the analytics world, right? But Theo had this amazing hand on the pulse of how important a clubhouse was and a locker room and realizing, you know, yeah, we want guys that have good numbers, but we also want guys that are glue and guys that you can rely on and trust and things like that. So there was that combo. And then when I came back in 2014, in the winter of 2014, and kind of just going through the winter meetings, and watching what it meant to him. I just remember watching it and being like, wow, like you can see the competitive nature of Theo. So there wasn't a doubt in my mind that he was going to do whatever it took to be able to, to bring a championship to Chicago. Not a doubt. What are some of the intangibles that you think you all had on those 07 and 08 teams and compare it to some of the players, you know, from the 2016 squad. Like, I would say that there is a lot of Carlos Zambrano in Javi Baez in terms of the fire and the way and the intensity with which they played the game. Matt, would it be fair to compare Dempster to Hendricks in the sense that goes out, does the job, lead by example, fiery here and there, but, you know, he's going to try and keep it even killed on the field? That's not bad. And... and Traded for each other, so that's that's kind of cool. I, I would compare. I would compare if you were to blend Hendricks and John Lackey together. Like, 
You know, like go out, do my job. That's the most important thing. But but also really good in the clubhouse. I like to make sure everybody's, you know, staying even keel. Um, but I, you know, A, wasn't as good a pitcher as Kyle and B, couldn't drink as much beer as John. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, you know. But basically, do you see any similarities from watching the 2016 team? Comparative to some of the guys you had in the clubhouse at that time, yeah, I, I do. You know, s- some of the some of the talent and the you know the guys passionately wanted to win and wanted to play the flair of the game. Like you know, the clubhouse between 2008 and the clubhouse being around so much in 2016, it was a lot of similarities, right? Like all of a sudden you start to get that group that like you got ten deep at breakfast, you know, on the road, or you know, hey, we're having a team dinner and 25 guys show up. It's like sweet like that's when you start to but when you got 25 guys 25 cabs that's a bad combo when you got guys going in all different directions because like at the end of the day if you don't care about me you don't really it doesn't really matter to you you're kind of collecting a paycheck so yeah there was there was a lot of comparable things between the two teams when i was like except i felt like the 2016 team was better um you know as far as all around just like what they had and the, and just there was something about it. I, I think winning in 2015 really teed up 2016. What did, what did it feel like as a former Cubs player to watch the 2016 run? Because it seems like people that have worn the Cubs uniform, there's still a bit of the Cubs that still sits in your heart. Like, you know, I don't know. Maybe you're still a Marlins guy deep down as well. But it seems like the Cubs kind of latch on to you. It's like it's the one ex that it didn't work out with that you hoped it had worked out. And then you see her get married and you go, oh, right. She does. Am I saying too much? I feel like I'm sharing too much of my own personal (laughs) life right now. But but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, that is a great analogy you know because like when i got traded from the marlins i didn't care if i ever saw that x again i'm like just like <laughs> you know cincinnati was a one-night stand i don't even remember her name you know and and then all of a sudden you get to like chicago and it, it, it's the truth man it's like it just engulfs you and like it's because it's not because at the time it wasn't because of ownership it wasn't you know that that the people the fans, the the ushers working in the ballpark, the season ticket holders that sit in the left field bleachers, you know, uh, the Tom and Ginger in the right center that sit out there with Will, and you know Phil Grinstead who sat behind me in the in the bullpen, and you know the front office, and like all these people in Chicago, and then around the ballpark, and then you know the Dillmans at Bernie's, and like you just go to all these places, and Beth Murphy, and you're like, it's more than just baseball, it's like this community, so. And they always welcome you back. Look at the Cubs convention. You go to the Cubs convention. It's like, you know, they do the intros and they're like, you know, welcome back, Brian LaHare. And it's like erupts like he just like three-time batting champion or something. The dude like made an all-star team. And that's awesome. Like that's like the greatest feeling that you're still welcomed like that back in a city after you. And that's different. That's different about Chicago. And it's different about the Cubs. And so for me watching it all, yeah, you're darn right. It's like, did part of me, like a little tiny part of me feel like envious, not jealous, envious. And it was just like, it was, it was like, yeah, it was their turn. Like it wasn't jealousy that there was none of that. It was happiness for all of them. And they deserved it, man. They, they overcame and triumphed something that so many of us tried to do for 108 years. Couldn't do it. Pretty awesome. This, this ball club pulled through for all of you. 
Thank you so much, Chicago, for this opportunity. Thank you so much. This is your team. Thank you. And then there's the rally, that ridiculous, huge rally after they won the title. What do you remember from that? You could see the tears, the smile, the joy. I mean, it was just this magical, unbelievable event. And somebody said one time, you know, like, hey, you know, this many people and the only other gatherings that were bigger than this were religious ones, you know, at the Vatican or something. I go, hey, let me tell you something right now. What we just witnessed was a religious experience. And so that's just what happened right there. Amen to that. See, it's the flip side of that feeling we were all talking about in the ballpark when everybody feels that impending doom and that's going back and forth. Imagine the joy, the joy and the satisfaction going back and forth. And that's what it was, right? Heck yeah, man. We just had the best time at Burning Man. You know what I mean? Like nobody... <laughs> Nobody had more fun than we had right there. I'll tell you that. It was unbelievable. Well, I am not going to corner you with the final question I was going to ask you. I'm going to simply say thank you instead of asking you to choose between being a part of the Cubs World Championship in the front office or being a part of the Red Sox Championship as a player. I'm not going to make you choose on which one was more emotionally moving for you. I'm not going to make you choose. I'm simply going to say good day to you, Ryan Dempster. Thank you so much, Mr. Wood, Mr. Spiegel. I love going down this memory lane, man. This has been great. I bet it was the Cubs. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, that is the man. He is the man. I, you know, I'm glad that I didn't press him on Red Sox in uniform or Cubs as an exec. That was really, it, it was beautifully passive aggressive. Like that was remarkable. You know, that was elite <laughs> skill level, sir. Uh, I went to Alabama public schools. Yo, this is what we're going to be doing uh, for the entirety of this special program. It's just talking to people like Dempster and getting to the bottom of some of the bigger moments. That's why I cannot wait until the next episode where we get to talk to the skipper himself, Joe Madden. You're going to love it, man. I mean, I, I did interviews with Joe. Yeah, he, he and he's just, he's such a zen guy and a thoughtful guy. He is the closest thing that Major League Baseball has to Phil Jackson. <laughs> I think that's true. Because um, what we've done now for people, Roy, is I think we've set the stage with 100 years of losing and why that may or may not have been happening. And we told people about this <laughs> cast of characters. We're going to get to know um, all these people who were part of this magical month in 2016. But the person in charge of steering the whole thing was the guy, Joe Madden. It was really him and Theo Epstein, who was above everything. And we're going to talk to him later in the series in great detail. But it was Theo and it was Joe who got things going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's all in our next episode coming later this week. Uh, Matt, thank you to you. Thank you. You know, we, we did it. One down, many more to go. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like we became a team right right now, I, today. The way, I believe so. Yeah. And we are just getting started on the run. This is going to be fun, man.
The Run is a production of Odyssey in partnership with Major League Baseball. Jody Avergan of Roulette Productions is our executive producer. Justin Kaufman is senior producer. Mixing by Joanna Ketcher at Nice Matters. Our theme song is a cover of Steve Goodman's Go Cubs Go by Chicago's very own The Hood Internet. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley and Mike D. at Odyssey and Nick Trotta at Major League Baseball. Mitch Rosen, Dustin Hapley, and Russ Matera and everybody else at 670 The Score. Also to everyone at Odyssey and Major League Baseball who helped make this happen. Also, Matt, special thanks to Jose Vizcaino, Ray Odoñez, and of course my personal favorite, Shawan Dunstan. Without them, Roy's fandom doesn't exist, and neither does this podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. We'll be back soon with more of The Run.